to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, director of content at Steinway & Sons and editor-in-chief of the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. If you enjoy Soundboard, please rate, review, and subscribe to it wherever you pod your casts. My guest today is Steinway artist Andrew Rangel, and he's here to talk about the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Rangel has made numerous recordings of Bach over the decades, the latest being the well-tempered clavier Book Two for the Steinway and Sons label. recorded a lot of music by Bach. Today, I wanted to talk to you about Bach. I wanted to talk to you about recording Bach, playing Bach, spending so much time with him. Can you recall if there was a specific time when you remember first hearing Bach? Oh, no doubt. Somewhere uh, around the age of 10 or 11, I was living in a the small town of Castle Rock, Colorado, a sort of cultural wasteland, but in the middle of a family that loved music and there were records. And uh, the short of it is that in between listening to Michelangelo play the Ravel Concerto or Gieseking play the Waldstein, there were new recordings at that time of Glenn Gould playing Bach. And this grabbed me probably like no other, for a variety of reasons. One of them being the power, electricity, immediacy of the music and the playing. The second thing being that as a young kid already kind of studying piano, not at a terribly high level, he was playing music that was not totally inaccessible to me, which is one of the amazing facets and joys of Bach that he writes fewer notes than Prokofiev. (laughs) And what is it, Andy, about Bach that has driven you to devote so much of your musical life to playing and recording his music? Well, you know, Ben, of course, that's a huge question. And the answer lies in the endless variety and depth of, of Bach's keyboard music, to say nothing of all the rest of it that there is a particular power even of of simple pieces to draw one in and then keep providing more and more challenge and nourishment. I should say that the particular pieces that I encountered that I remember very distinctly, the D minor keyboard concerto, the Italian concerto, and also the B flat partita, these were pieces that had enormous immediate appeal And guess what? I'm past 70 now, and these are all incredibly perfect masterpieces in plain sight, but hidden. I'm speaking in a general sense, but particularly the slow movements of those concerti are just incredible specimens of soul, depth, and and actually complexity as well.
thing about Bach is that he gradually reveals, as you inspect in your delight, you inspect these things further, there is always something else to be discovered. I would add to that that at a slightly later stage, when I was just beginning a very serious study of music, two other pieces came into sight, one of them being the E minor partita, the other, the Goldberg variations. And between those two pieces, I think things were sort of clinched for me because those are, are, are very subtle, demanding and difficult pieces having a great deal to supply to the musician, but also many problems to, to solve. Solving those problems was a good part of my early education at Juilliard. Solving problems is an interesting segue because my next question was, I wonder if you could tell me about some early Bach encounters that maybe also brought with it some early lessons to playing that master. Well, just to pick up on the Goldberg Variations. Sure. The Goldberg Variations, which has many great joys that you pick up on immediately and to begin with a, a just-to-die-for theme, but also an assortment of ever-changing variations, many of which you know, have enormous electricity and a kind of virtuosity, and then others which are character pieces. Just the sheer sequence of, of events which I did not un understand well, in fact, at the time. I mean, the structure of canon and etude and character piece and the whole structure of the piece was not clear to me at the beginning. But the challenges were very clear. Part of it, of course, is the texture of the piece, rendering it clearly and with energy and with a kind of liveliness. Lastly, let me mention that the nature of this two-manual piece requires that you carefully look and see how the lines pass through each other. And so I literally had to rewrite for myself large segments of certain variations and practice them and become adept at the transfer of voices from one hand to another. And this was an amazing lesson in distribution of things, which is, after all, a very fundamental thing about piano playing and if you're playing the Hammerklavier Fugue, I assure you, it comes into play there, too. <laughs> I want to come back to voice leading and, and counterpoint. But first, maybe you could take me through the process. You sit down at the piano. How do you approach a piece by Bach? What are the priorities? And does that approach, does your approach to Bach and do those priorities for Bach differ from how you might approach a different piece of music by another composer? Well, you're talking to someone who has studied music for many decades, and I can tell you right away that there is no sort of formal procedure, or I begin with the left hand, or that sounds a little bit too flip. No, not at all. In fact, I'm sure there are pianists who consider the score very carefully, stay away from the piano, try to understand... In, in any case, I can just say that I don't think I approach Bach any differently than learning anything else. But, of course, by now, I'm looking for a few remaining pieces to approach. That said, my connection with Bach 
was not compressed into an early period of study under a harsh disciplinarian who said, you have to do this, play all the preludes and fugues, play this, then you can play a whatever it is. That is not how uh, it happened for me. And it was, it was very free form. A lot of decisions about what to do, how to do it, were based on just the sheer excitement of the reference of Gould and others. You know, gradually, of course, I heard certain harpsichord players, I heard Turek, I heard several other people. But for me, no one displaced Gould in terms of just the sheer excitement of delineation and articulation, and also the soulful commitment, let's say, to a slow movement like the Italian Concerto Second Movement or the 25th Variation of the Goldberg Variations, where where somehow the sense of inexorability was overwhelming. And it, this this was a model for me of trying to sustain something. And it had a lot to do also, of course, as I gradually realized, with the details of the texture, which is where all the meaning in Bach is, is wrapped or resides. This is an extremely gradual kind of process. I began recording late in life, even though uh, the Goldberg Variations, in fact, was my first recording, and that was 30 years ago. But I, was, I had already played the piece for 20 years and had by that time also very carefully studied all the partitas and the B minor French overture, the Italian concerto, a number of other things, the three-part inventions. All of this gave me kind of the base to pursue a huge number of other pieces going forward. It was a kind of an interesting circumstance of my own journey in recording to come not early but late to the preludes and fugues. And in my last recording is book two of The Well-Tempered. And the first book was, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. I'm straying, I realize, a little bit from your initial question of how to deal with learning the pieces. And really, the fundamental things have to be to somehow hone in gradually on the character of the piece. And Bach presents all kinds of subtle uh, variations. He doesn't hand you the character of the piece. There are so many hybrid forms in the well-tempered. In fact, you have to bring a great deal of knowledge and experience to to begin to feel you have a grip on this. And I would add that in, in the most abstract piece of all, the art of fugue, that is the most elusive thing. The other indispensable element just has to do with sensitivity to the polyphony and most of all of making it live, which is something that in, in my experience, not all that many people have been able to do. And I always come back to Gould, who had a kind of preternatural, if I may use that word, sense of how to animate counterpoint. Mm. This is something not, it's not really taught in conservatories, the way people are taught to play Chopin etudes or, you know, certain, <laughs> or difficult Ravel or Rachmaninoff pieces. It starts with being able to play that most difficult of all things, a two-part invention. Mm -hmm. And you've recorded these two-part inventions, and then the sinfonias, which are three-part. Exactly. It's a hard thing to quantify, but when we're approaching 
multiple lines of counterpoint and multiple voices and focusing on the voice leading. Yeah. How do you even approach that? I have given this matter some some thought, of course, and over time, I have kind of evolved a basic sensibility. It's a kind of almost instinct or intuition, and it hinges, Ben, on something very fundamental that is not all that well understood, I think, in general. This has to do with the fact that at all times in a two or three or four part piece the texture, of course, shifts in a few where various voices come in or go away. You realize after, after a while that there is no real way for the mind to focus on three or four simultaneous events. Some people may say otherwise. Orchestral conductors, it, it is said, have to be very aware, of course, of multiple contributions. But in for me, in keyboard works, it seems very clear that to have two voices interacting uh, at close range or in the foreground is something that one can control. And even in two voices, it turns out that there is obviously a constant flux of what is in the foreground and what is in the background. And this is shifting so often that if you if you are very adept at this shift which you know which has to do with with the, the matters of theme and presentation and register and so forth and and imitation you are able eventually to create an illusion it is the illusion of being in control of simultaneous things and this extends to part writing of 3 or 4 or even more parts where you are pulling certain things for a moment into the foreground and, and pushing things back into, uh, into a subsidiary place in the ear. So it's a kind of a very sophisticated juggling act. It has to do with the sensitivity to to things that are that are trying to get heard in relation to to other things. And if you play very complicated box such as the art of the fugue, you become <laughs> you become aware that there is very much more that is not really almost audible even to the ear that is going on, and that you can only control the first two or three voices, and that. 
you have to rely on properties of sonority or placement of certain things to to suggest rather than actually clarify things that are happening, let's say, in huge augmentations or some, something like that. So again, it, it has to do with a, almost a rotational kind of sensibility of alternation of foreground and, uh, and background. Does that make any sense to you? Indeed. You've mentioned the art of fugue a couple times now yeah. in relation to its difficulty. I think that of Bach's solo keyboard works, it's difficult too for the listener. Yes. More so compared to other works. Maybe you should touch on what is it <laughs> what is it that makes it difficult to play, maybe even to hear, and how you try to bridge that gap between music and audience. Well, <laughs> you use the term audience and we take it for granted that concert pianists or professional musicians, soloists, you know, we take for granted the concept of audience. This monumental creation that Bach virtually ended his life trying to write and in a sense didn't quite get there. Um, the Art of Fugue is a piece for, for those who may not know it and indeed I myself did not know it until I decided to look into it probably at the age of 60, something, something like that. The Art of Fugue is a set of 14 extremely complicated fugues and I believe four complicated canons, all based on the kernel of a very short theme. And this theme itself is the starting point for all of these fugues. And yet the theme also evolves in the sense of eventually being given in retrograde or and, and also in inversion and other complications are added. But the whole enterprise is an enormously slow unfolding of fugal variations with very complicated textures in the same key of D minor and also in the same sort of archaic tonal sensibility, a sort of a modal sensibility going back to even the great master of Svelink. So Bach is writing this incredibly visionary, interior, I think modernistic in a sense, in terms of its amazing complexity. And we go back to the notion of audience. Who is Bach's audience at that point? Well, unmistakably, God <laughs> is one. <laughs> then Bach is writing, I think, for himself and whoever else at that point in his life may appreciate what he's doing. By that time, the concept of audience is, I think, almost beside the point, even though several very talented people have sat an audience down and created, you know, in good faith, this amazing and mystical experience. I myself do not feel that the piece was actually intended as a playthrough. And I say this in distinction to the Goldberg Variations, which is a piece that gains immeasurably from being played through and is not just is not a catalog of events. It has an astounding magic and life as it unfolds and evolves. You know, but Bach also wrote in the preludes and fugues are catalogs. They don't have shared material. Even in fact, even the two and three part inventions just are vivid and beautiful 
catalogs and are not, I think, really intended as a kind of uh, progression meant primarily for audiences. So to come back to the, the art of fugue, I don't believe in my, in, in my entire life I ever wanted to or intended to or even could, to my own standard, play through the entire 70 plus a minute work. Nonetheless, there is a kind of logic to the way the piece unfolds, of course, and it moves from simple, that is to say, fairly complex to more, to more complex. And the problem in it really is how, again, to find what the prevailing personality or the prevailing the character, really, as one does with every single sweet movement and every single prelude and fugue. And sure enough, the character, it gradually emerges, but it emerges very slowly and in relation to the various presentational complications. And it was three years, in fact, before I uh, felt that I had enough of a bead on what I wanted to impart with each one of these fugues before I went to the studio uh, for, for that purpose. That's remarkable. Also, probably enough time in the deep end of the Bach pool. <laughs> Let's come back a bit back to technique. Your Bach playing includes rubato and it includes pedaling. That is more usual now than it used to be, uh, even a few decades ago. Is there anything you'd like to say about that, about bringing rubato and pedaling into your Bach? Well, Ben, to me, it is axiomatic. It is not even a matter of discussion or contention, uh, especially especially rubato. Pedal, pedal, of course, is a matter, to some extent, of taste. Let's start with rubato. What is rubato? Rubato, in the end, is the use of small, small discrepancies of time or placement. It is, it is a technique of interruption or of gently moving toward a direction or away from uh, away from a resting place. And in the end, it is a way of imparting meaning. It is commonly thought of as a kind of indulgence. And this is where, to me, it is the opposite. It is an indispensable discipline in all music, in all string quartets, in all symphonies. The main point about Bach is that everything is operating at the closest range you will find in any great composer. The the meaning and the soul of Bach are wrapped not only in a overwhelmingly sort of polyphonic package, but also usually in a kind of a texture and a kind of direction that are generally thought to be of a single tempo. I mean, you look at the 48 preludes and fugues, and fundamentally, the character and tempo and the nature of the polyphony is established right away and is very consistent. But you have to look much further and much deeper to find the very separation of voices, of the discovery of small arrival points, of small takeoff points, some of which are, by the way, on the same note, and to create a handoff from one voice to another. These things require time and a certain amount of elasticity. So to me, this is like the college the great college of, of rubato. It makes rubato elsewhere seem much, much easier. 
<laughs> because you're dealing, again, with a density and a concentration of music, which in order to elucidate and or to delineate a very controlled rubato is absolutely essential. Also, not a lot of fermatas in Bach for us to take a breath otherwise, right? That's an interesting point. There are other things in Bach that are more subtle than a fermata. And some of the bigger and more um, developed preludes or fugues have often, I would say, this is just a, just a for example, a kind of a coda section that is not labeled as such. And it is a very subtle point at which, and Bach does this more masterfully perhaps than any other composer, a signal that the end is somewhere near. There is a sense that you do not have to hasten anymore toward, you don't have to push harder. There is a kind of relaxation. And in fact, as we know, very often the writing itself with um, certain emphases away from the beat assure a kind of retard if you're at all sensitive. This is the thing about Bach. Everything is an inference. <laughs> there, is no, there are no instructions except, guess what? The music itself, look hard enough. It tells you not exactly what to do, but in general terms, what you might try or what might enhance the sense of this, that, and arrival, and ending, and articulation of something. And this is all very subtle. To come back to the pedal, the pedal provides something that, again, for me, is absolutely indispensable if it doesn't get in the way. It is the advantage of very carefully shading or coloring certain things, or in fact, emphasizing the outline rather than the individual notes of any given texture or sometimes even a, even a line. Suggesting chords. Let's put it this way. In polyphony, um, the intersection of the vertical and the horizontal, uh, that is to say, the intersection of what could be construed vertically as chords and what could also be construed at the same time as horizontal lines. This is one of the great magical things that Bach does. As a matter of fact, even enhancing the clarity rather than taking away, because the sustaining power, when it's ju judiciously applied, of the pedal is an enormous resource. The hand cannot keep in play every single thing. And to my mind, the piano, which is, of course, not the instrument Bach wrote for, turns out to be a great, great friend in its touch sensitivity, but also in the careful use of the pedal to give color and to, to provide at certain times what you could even call atmosphere. It's a different thing, you know, than the, the floating atmosphere of, of impressionistic writing or something like that. Andy, you've known Bach a long time. How has your relationship with the composer changed, matured, evolved over the decades? Did you say decade or decades? <laughs> decades. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I think the simple answer to that just has to do with both increased knowledge and familiarity and even intimacy with the kinds of things that Bach did with encyclopedic 
thoroughness. In other words, you start with one thing, in this case, a suite. It's called the B-flat Partita. It is a work of utter genius and perfection. And it's already, even despite its simplicity, it's already in the, so to speak, late section. It's in the last mature group of suites, the French suites and English suites having preceded the Partitas. But there you are, you're Andy, you're young, you're playing this, this wonderful piece. You're articulating a, an allemande in that marvelous, alive way. You heard Glenn Gould do it. And then after a while, you get a bit of a uh, speed bump. And it, it has to do with information. And it has to do with what an allemande really is and how Bach explored that question 19 or 20 times to perfection in 19 or 20 different ways using the general attributes. And so what I'm saying is that project this kind of a process of finding out what a French overture is, finding out what each of these dance forms that Bach so lovingly and laboriously studied, what the possibilities are there, and then to go back to individual movements. Let's jump actually to the E minor partita, which I mentioned to you before, which has a strange mystical kind of allemande with all kinds of movements on the off beat. And this is like no other allemande. And you basically come to terms with reconciling what you find actually in the notes, which is 90% of what is there, with a certain amount of just information, which is gradually gained. And this applies to fugues, it really applies to almost any kind of thing that is encountered over and over. I didn't mention ornamentation, which is also part of the process of presenting repetitive material in ways that make it evolve. That's a large separate category. <laughs> You've made so many recordings. Is there one that really, Sarah, a, a, a movement or a, a piece or a partita or a invention that really stuck with you as far as being a, a, a transcendent 
experience for you in the studio? That's an interesting question. And I think the short answer is no, but only in the overwhelming sense that that a deep immersion in Bach produces for me an excitement and identification. Don't forget, all of my recordings of Bach and everything else have occurred more or less in a period between the age of 40 and 70. <laughs> and uh, this immersion, this great liberty and great privilege that I have had of having the time to take a project literally to discover for myself what is there, to live inside it, to inhabit it. It is the most amazing experience. And then to reach a certain point of clarity and inspiration, to go to the recording studio, not with a sense of knowing definitively what is going to emerge, but with Bach more than any other composer, Ben, I can assure you that as a sort of staging ground for different possibilities, especially when one feels in the groove or really at home, I made the remark in my notes to the English suites that because I felt more physically secure, that I wanted to start off, I thought I might as well simply not record the suites in any particular order, but to begin with all of the sarabands and all of the alamans. So I recorded 12 pieces at the beginning with multiple takes, of course. Why? Because there are so many choices. And I'm not talking about even calculated choices. I'm talking about certain things to emphasize, certain ways to make a cadence, and of course, a whole multiplicity of possible ornaments. Your question really was, did any given piece in, in your Bach recording experience stand out as a single transformative moment? And all of my experiences of recording Bach have involved this kind of amazing sense of being for a certain number of days in the thrall of Bach, but also feeling a connection that has been nudged to a high point and that provides a sort of fuel for further exploration. Bach permits you to build a performance, which, which sounds very artificial, but at a certain level, it becomes very wonderful and essential and, and organic, even. <laughs> You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard Steinway artist Andrew Rangel playing Bach, including Invention No. 1 in C Major on the Steinway & Sons label, the Andante from the Italian Concerto on Bridge Records, the Aria from the Goldberg Variations, Invention No. 12 in A Major, and Contrapunctus VI from Art of the Fugue, all on Steinway, and the Allemande from the B-flat Partita and the Air from the E Minor Partita on Dorian Records. Our intro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Our closing music is Andrew Rangel playing the fugue from the Prelude and Fugue in F Major from Bach's Well-Tempered Clavier Book 2, available now from the Steinway & Sons label. Question for the podcast? Message me on Facebook at Soundboard, or hit me on the gram at Soundboard Podcast. 
Subscribe to Soundboard on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, or wherever you pod your casts. Thank you for listening.